Today, someone asked me uh, what I was preaching on this week, and I said, well, Psalm 129. And they said, well, let's read it together. So we read it. And after we finished reading, they said, well, I sure hope you're going to explain that. And I said, well, come and tell me if I did. <laughs> so let's try. Let me set it, up, set it up like this. There was a young woman a couple years ago in Sri Lanka, and we'll call her Roshana. It's not her real name, but that's how she's referred to, Roshana. And Roshana is a Christian. She lives in a community where it's not always acceptable to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. And she was one day in the home of another Christian family praying for them uh, when her phone rang, and she answered it. And it was someone that she didn't know, a woman that she didn't know, um, but she answered it. And the woman was asking and said, would you pray for me and would you pray for my, for my children? And she said, sure, and this is where I am. And so they waited for her, and the woman came to the, to the home. And after the woman came and they, she started telling them about Jesus and praying for them, a group of five Buddhist monks and, an, and a, a mob of young people surrounded the house. Roshana had been set up. And in front of a rolling video camera from one of these youths, she was drugged out of the house, beaten, and taken to the, the local temple where they... They, they, they took our belongings, they mocked her for being a Christian, they threatened to kill her, and then ultimately they let her go. And so she was free, a bit shaken, a, a little bit, but otherwise okay. And Roshana continues to live in the same community, telling people about Jesus, telling people about Christianity. She's going about her business. I mean, she says the incident affected her in a way, but really she said this is just, it's just part of what it means to be a follower of, of Jesus. Now, I tell the story because this is actually not the most dramatic, not the most kind of graphic story that I could tell of someone, even in the world today, suffering oppression or persecution. I could find much more dramatic ones in history or, or, or in the church just in the last year. But it's actually, it's in the relative tameness, I think, of the story. It's sort of commonality that we see the point. Because throughout history, the people of God have faced oppression. It's just part of what it means to be a follower of God. Now, it's true in America and in, and in Europe, particularly over the last couple hundred years or so, we've had to think less about these kinds of things. But I think that's changing. And I think there's a lot of evidence that shows that it, that it is. And I wouldn't, it would, would I be terribly surprised if things like happening to Roshana began to happen in different kind of ways? In some instances, there are things like that that are even happening now in the West, aren't there? Right? I mean, it's just... Just last year when nine people were killed in Charleston, South Carolina, when someone came into a prayer meeting purporting to be a participant in that prayer meeting and then turned their guns on people and killed nine people. It was only a few months ago when a shooter on the campus of a community college in Oregon singled out Christians to kill. And it was just a few weeks ago when a, a priest who was conducting a worship service in France was, was executed. So do we have reason to think that things like that can't happen here? Would I be shocked? No. No, I don't think so. But there's not a reason to be an alarmist about things either, because that's where a psalm like this can help us. Because ancient Israel understood the feeling of oppression pretty well. And so God's people today have a great deal to learn from God's people then. And they knew what to do. They knew that with a history of oppression and with the constant threat of more, they knew that they could trust in a God of rescue and in a God of justice. That's basically how this psalm breaks down. Verses 1 through 4, you see a God of rescue, and verses 5 through 8, you see 
a God of justice. First, let's look at a God of rescue, verses 1 through 4. Let me read it again. They've greatly oppressed me from my youth, let Israel say. They've greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long, but the Lord is righteous. He has, he has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. Now, when you're studying the Psalms in general, you'll find that the commentary of the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner is frequently cited by more contemporary writers, and that's true for this psalm as well. In fact, if you one of his line at the beginning of his discussion of Psalm 129 is a line that I found quoted by multiple people in multiple places. Right, the line goes like this: Kidner observes about Psalm 129. He says, "Whereas most nations tend to look back on what they have achieved, Israel looks back on what they have survived. Most nations look back on the things they've achieved." Israel reflects on what they have survived. Now imagine that being your claim to fame, right? You go up to someone and you say to them, hey, how you doing? And you expect good or something like that. And they say, I'm surviving. Now, how do you take that? Right? Usually you take that, that something isn't going terribly well in their lives, that things are, things, things are amiss, that, that things aren't the way that they ought to be. And the history of Israel was often like that. Remember, these are the Psalms of, the Psalms of Ascent, and they were very often sung by pilgrims who were on their way to Jerusalem for one of the great feasts, one of the great Jewish feasts. And here you have a cantor, a, a lead singer, a leader of the singing, giving the words to the people. That's what he said, let Israel say. And what he wants them to say is that they have been greatly oppressed from their youth. In fact, he wants them to repeat it. They have been greatly oppressed from their, from their youth. And that, I mean, greatly, with, with intensity. From their, various early, from their very earliest days as a, as a nation. And he, and he has them repeat it to, to magnify that intensity and to show them the repetition shows that this oppression happened repeatedly. And then verse 3 drives home the point because it says, Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. And you don't have to be a farmer to get the graphic image of what this is talking about. This is the back of a slave being cut in long furrows by the whip of the oppressor. Right? Now, the oppressors aren't named, but certainly, at the very least, this would have taken the people of Israel back to Egypt and the severe oppression that they faced there before being freed by God and rescued in the Exodus. In fact, in Exodus chapter 1, it tells us that the Egyptians worked the Israelites. They used the, Egypt, the, the Israelites ruthlessly. Right? And in Egypt, it was actually it was the severe beating of an Israelite by, a, by an Egyptian plowman slave master that caused Moses to publicly side with his people for the very first time. But of course, it wouldn't have only been Egypt that the people probably would have been thinking about because during the time of the judges, Israel was often oppressed by foreign nations, by, by the Philistines and Syrians and Moabites and, 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 and Ammonites and Edomites and, and all kinds of others. And throughout their history, this would have been the case. Now, it does raise an interesting question for us, though, doesn't it? The question is why? Why are God's people oppressed? Right? A historical question, certainly, but, but, but a question with some historical or some contemporary relevance for us as well. And you can answer the why question with lots of surface-level answers. Okay, why would the people of God, why were the people of God oppressed? Why? Well, think about Egypt, for example. Racial and, and racial hatred and, and fear. That's why the Egyptians began to oppress the Israelites in the first place. They, remember, the Israelites began to get really numerous. 
And the Egyptians looked at that and they feared that the purity of their society would be threatened, that the political stability of their, of their nation would be threatened. And so they reacted by oppressing the, the Israelites. That's, that's certainly one case. Now, in other instances, you see that the Israelites were oppressed because they insisted upon the worship and, the, and, and only the worship of the one true God. Right? That's what would later get the people of Israel in, in, in trouble during the exile in the time of Daniel and the time of, of Esther. It was their insistence that they would not bow down to any God but the one true God who had been revealed to them through Abraham, Isaac, and the patriarchs. And both of those reasons are very, very true. And I think, I think the oppression of God's people then, the oppression of God's people today, has its roots sometimes in fear, sometimes in hatred for, for God himself. But that doesn't really answer the, the deeper question that I think I'm asking, the question I think that the people of God are most likely to ask in the midst of suffering themselves. And, 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 and the point, the, the, the why question, the why question is not really asking at that point what are the sociological and what are the psychological roots of, of this oppression? No, at that point, for someone who's actually experiencing it, the why question is asking, okay, if we're really God's people, then why is God allowing this to happen to us? And we have to confess that at many levels, we don't know. We don't know all the reasons in specific instances, but that doesn't mean that the people of God, when things like this happen, don't know anything because we can know some very clear things that are very true, because in, in the oppression, we often learn something that is very, very true, very, very helpful about God and the character of God himself and about ourselves. Right? Think about the character of God, because in oppression, we learn something about him that we would not otherwise learn, perhaps, except for that oppression. Remember Roshana, the woman from Sri Lanka? She said that after her experience with the mob, she was actually more drawn to Jesus. She found God more attractive, bigger, more, more important. And as a result, she wanted him more, not less. Now, we'll talk about that in a minute, but, but that comes from the fact that when you look at Jesus and you look at the oppression that he experienced, then you begin to have a greater appreciation of God than you would otherwise have when you yourself experience oppression. That doesn't make the oppression objectively good in any way. It doesn't mean that you should intentionally seek it out. But it does mean that when God allows it to come into your life, you learn things about your God and Savior that you perhaps would not have understood in any other way. Now, the other thing that oppression can can teach us about is not just about God, but about, but about ourselves, because oppression can sometimes have this purifying effect. It reveals genuine faith within us. When everything else, in other words, is stripped away, we see something about the church collectively, about ourselves individually. There's a story that circulated in the, in the 1960s in communist Eastern Europe uh, about a gathering, a church gathering, where people were gathered to pray, and in the back burst two soldiers armed with automatic weapons, and they shouted, anyone who wants to renounce their faith can leave now, otherwise you will be killed. And a bunch of people got up and they, they left. But other people stayed, and they prayed. And after the people had left, the two soldiers walked to the front, put down their weapons, and said, we're Christians too. But we wouldn't dare make that proclamation when there are others around who we aren't sure if they're genuine believers or not. 
Now, I don't know if, that, if that's actually legend or, or, or truth, but, it, but it's commonly told because it illustrates this point really well. Do you see what they did? This wasn't actually real oppression. This was just threatened oppression. But what was the effect? The phony believers left, and the genuine ones stayed. That's what oppression has the tendency to do. Now, so, so we see something. We see something about the character of God, and we see something about, about ourselves. But the ultimate cause... The ultimate reason for comfort in the midst of oppression, when you don't feel, when you don't feel as if perhaps you have the strength, you say like, oh man, I'm not sure I'm strong enough to be, to be able to be one of the ones who stays. I'm not sure I have the strength to be able to do that. Where do I get the strength to be able to do that? One of the ways that you get that is by looking to the God of rescue. Right? That's what verse 4 says. After all of this, after all the oppression, the psalmist says, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. Now, these could be the cords of bondage, like shackles, or they could be the cords of the, of the whip, but it almost doesn't matter because in either case, it's saying exactly the same thing. The Lord has cut them. They no longer have power over you. And certainly, and most dramatically, this was the case of the people of Israel in, in Egypt when God had rescued his people from bondage there in, in Egypt. And, and, and the pilgrims who were heading to Jerusalem, singing the Psalms of Ascent, certainly would have been thinking about this as they were approaching Jerusalem, preparing to celebrate the Passover and the Exodus. And this would have then not just been a, a celebration of what had happened in the, fa- in the past, but the amazing basis for everything that they would need to be able to endure in the, in the future. Because, see, there is a, there's a definitive aspect to the way that this is stated. God's rescue isn't just something that happened back then. If God, if God is the God of rescue, then, then it means he's the God of rescue today. It means he is the God of rescue in the, in the future. He is the rescuer of God's people. And so that's, that's the first point. That's the point of verses 1 to 4 with a history of oppression and with a constant threat of more, they knew that they could trust in the God of rescue. Now, that's them. That's them as the oppressed. But what about the oppressor? How should we think about them? How, how do you focus on them? That's when we need to trust not just in the God of rescue, but the God of justice. And that's what the psalmist wants. That's what he's asking for. Look at verses 5 through 8 again. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. With it, the reaper cannot fill his hands, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The psalmist is asking here that the works of the oppressor would not succeed. Right? See, let's just walk right through it. Verse, verse 5. He's asking that they would be turned back in shame, that, that they would receive no honor, that they would be defeated. And then verse 6, that they would wither like grass on the roof. Now, this is not talking about some new modern sustainable housing solution where you grow grasses on roofs and things like that. This is talking about in the ancient world when they would, they would build earthen roofs, actually, to insulate, to secure, to strengthen. And they would take earth and they would pile it on top of the roofs and they'd flatten it out and they'd pound it down hard and pack it down so that the weather would kind of roll off of it. And oftentimes you'd have seedlings that would kind of sprout up, little grass or weeds or something like that, but it would never last because the soil wasn't, was, was all packed hard and, and dried out and because the sun would, would wither it up. And that's what the psalmist is asking. 
Those who are the oppressors, he's saying, he said, this is what I want them to be like. I want, I want, the, I want them to be withered like, like, like grass on a, on, a, on a hot roof. And then, verse 7, he says, you know, with it, the reaper cannot fill his hands nor the one who gathers fill his arms. Basically saying like, okay, the, the oppressor is planting a crop, a crop of oppression, and this is what I want to grow out of it, nothing. I want the reaper to walk into that crop and not be able to fill his arms because there's nothing there to reap nothing from what he is trying to, to sow. And then perhaps the most shocking statement of all, may those who pass by not say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you, we bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, did you catch that? The psalmist is praying that the people who see the oppressor and the enemy of Israel would not ask God to bless them, would, would, not, would not pronounce a blessing on them. It's like he's referring to this common blessing that they would have said to each other. The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. And he's saying to folks, hey, remember that blessing? You know that blessing that we say to each other? That blessing? Right, that one. Don't say it. Don't say it. You just walk on by. Don't say it on, on them. And now immediately, part of us as Christians, we kind of say, wait, wait a minute. That feels wrong. Doesn't that feel wrong? Should we really be saying that? And the reason why we say that is because we remember the words of, of Jesus, what Jesus said in Matthew 5, when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we say, hmm. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, to, to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And we say, hmm. And Peter, in 1 Peter 3, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. And we say, hmm, okay, wait. How do we square that? How do we square the words of the psalmist with the words of Jesus, Paul, and Peter? Now, I think there's two ways to, to do it, and both of them are true. But first, we have to understand that there's, there's perhaps a different understanding when, of what we mean when we say blessing, depending upon the context in which, in, in which it's used. In other words, praying for the enemies of God and looking for ways to show them the love of God does not mean that you're asking God to prosper their oppression. And if you think about this, it's almost obvious. Right? If, you, if you've known someone in your, in, in your own life, maybe who's, think of it this way, who's, who's maybe doing serious harm to themselves right, through some kind of addiction, through some kind of, 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 of behavioral pattern in their own life, right? they're doing serious harm. Now, are you asking God to bless them? Are you asking for blessing in their life? Well, yes, in a certain sense. What? You want their good. You want their ultimate good. But to ask for God to bless them means that they not receive what they may actually be seeking. So you're asking that their, their plans would not prosper, that they would fall apart. See, if you want their ultimate blessing, that you pray that God would not bless them in their, in their endeavors. And the same holds true for the terrorist, for the abuser, for the molester, all of those things. They're, enemy, they're, they're acting in, the, in those capacities. They're acting as enemies of God. And praying for them, which Jesus and Paul and Peter would command us to do and we should do, and seeking ways to love them and to bless them definitely means that we should be seeking ways to show them the love of God. It means that we should be seeking to pray for their, their repentance, for their conversion, definitely. But if they do not, and until they do, it also means that we absolutely should be praying that their exploitation of the weak, <laughs> that their murder of the innocent would fail. May they get no honor. 
May they be like withered grass. May no one who passes by the evil they do look at it and say that it's good. Right? So that's one way you, you square it. What the psalmist is saying about withholding blessing from the oppressor and the New Testament teaching that we should pray to, to bless the oppressor are, are actually the same thing. If you want the ultimate blessing for someone, then what they are doing that is evil and oppression is wrong, and you do not want it to prosper. But there's another sense. There's another, another difference that I think is important for us to, to understand between Psalm 129 and, between, and the New Testament teaching, and that's the placement, of, the placement in history of God's revelation where we find these two things. Right, the psalmist is writing in a time of theocracy, right, of the political nation of Israel, where the contrast between the people of God and the enemies of God were clearly and physically drawn. That doesn't mean that everyone who was a, a member of the political nation of Israel was actually a right-hearted follower of God, but God was clearly drawing lines and saying, these are the people of God and these are not the people of God. And that was important. That's a picture. That's what, that's what ultimately God will do in the establishment of the, of the new heavens and the new earth when he will establish his kingdom with very clear lines drawn. But in this age, the age in which we now live, the gospel age, something very important has happened since the time of the psalmist until now, and that's Jesus. And what Jesus does is show us how we, in the midst of the oppression, can turn over our prayers for justice, our desire to see the unjust, the, the oppressors, rightly judged and held accountable for their actions, how we can turn those over to Jesus, how we can pray them trusting that Jesus is the one who will perfectly handle them, that God is the one who is perfectly able to handle them. See, rightly prayed, these psalms, psalms like this, and there are other psalms that are actually much harsher than, than this when it talks about the, the oppressor and the, and the enemies of God. But these psalms rightly prayed turn over that vengeance to God and put them into the mouth of Jesus and say, Jesus, you handle this in a perfect way. Now, how do you do that? How can you, how can you do that, particularly when you yourself are a victim of injustice and a victim of oppression? You know, many, many traditional Presbyterians, Presbyterian preachers, when they, when they, when they talk about the oppression of the church, they'll tell stories, they'll go back and they'll tell stories of the Scottish Reformation. In fact, several of the sermons I listened to on Psalm 129, several of them, several, several of these pastors, they go back and they tell stories of the Scottish Reformation. And that's because the Presbyterian Church in its kind of, in its, its form, it's, it started in Scotland. And so you kind of go back to the roots, and, and, and the Scottish Presbyterian Church, they understood, they experienced a great deal of oppression at their, at their founding. And, and that's, not, that's not bad for us to remember that because, because there are real examples of what it looks like to, to suffer and endure oppression in the midst of being faithful uh, to God. But, but that's not where it ends. Yeah, the, the, the Church of Scotland, just, just for example, the Church of Scotland, their motto, their motto is, um, is, is Latin, of course, nec tamen consumabator, which means yet it was not consumed. And it's referring to Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, the burning bush. When Moses, when Moses looked at the burning bush, and the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. And the Scots look at that, and they say, look, that's just like us. <laughs> we were burning, but not consumed. The Presbyterian Church in Ireland is very similar, actually. Their, their, their motto is ardens sed virens, which is burning, but flourishing. Again, we're burning, but we're flourishing. How you doing? We're surviving. 
That's good. You get the picture? That's why, that's why preachers, that's why pastors would have used this as an illustration, experiences during that time, as an illustration of a rescuing God, of a just God in the midst of oppression, of course. But this is what I was thinking about this week. Last Sunday, our, our presbytery, our geographic grouping of churches here in the, in the area, in our denomination, ordained its first African-American minister, Daryl Watley, down in Dover. Now, not the first African-American to serve in our presbytery, but the first African-American man to be originally ordained as a teaching elder by our presbytery. Now, that's sad in, in many senses, but also very exciting in many, in many others. And there are two guys that are coming right, right behind him, ready to, 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 to follow in his footsteps. And one of those guys I spent a great deal of time with on Tuesday, his name is Derek Parks. Derek is a pastor in Camden, New Jersey, who is moving to Wilmington later this month, and he's looking to plant a church in the inner city of Wilmington. And he wants that church to be a part of our denomination in the, in the Presbyterian Church in America. But when you hang out with Derek and you talk about Presbyterian history, it's likely that you'll hear things that you never heard before about Presbyterian history. For example, did you know that the first black Presbyterian church in the United States was actually, was actually formed in Philadelphia in 1807? by a former slave named John Gloucester. Now, it might be possible to research it, actually, because First African Presbyterian Church in, in, in West Philadelphia actually has pretty good records going all the way back to the time. It might be possible to research it, but I have no idea whether John Gloucester, during his time as pastor of that church, more than 15 years, ever preached on Psalm 129. I have no idea. But this is what I was thinking about. Imagine if he did. If John Gloucester, the former slave from Tennessee, was preaching on one, Psalm 129, do you think he might have been thinking about something different than the oppression of the Scots in the Scottish Reformation? Now, he probably actually, in John Gloucester's case, he probably actually would have learned about those things. He was one of only six African-American men at the time who were theologically trained in a, in a college or university at the time. Absolutely amazing. In Tennessee, in fact. So he might have learned, probably did learn, about the Scottish Reformation. And it would have been good for him to learn about. There's lots of great things to learn about. it. They're helpful. But, but his own personal history of oppression, bondage, his own personal witness to, if not his own personal experience of the plowing of the backs by the whips of the slave masters, his own personal experience of being cut free from the bonds of slavery, it would have been a completely different sermon. But here's my point. This is what I was thinking about. How could someone with the personal experience of slavery and oppression like John Gloucester, how could someone come to Psalm 129 and preach confidently of hope, preach confidently that there is a God of justice and a God of vengeance that he can entrust all of the things that he sees around him and doesn't understand? How can he preach of that kind of God? Only if John Gloucester believed that that God was capable of rescuing and that God was capable of bringing justice in his perfect timing. And the only way that you can truly believe that is when you look at Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have both the perfect justice of God and the rescue of God. The plowmen have plowed my backs and made their furrows long. See, Jesus knew exactly what that was like. Jesus was, was, was tied to a post and whipped until long deep furrows were across his back. And he did it willingly, and he did it redemptively. 
willingly and with a purpose. And the reader of the Hebrew Scriptures, they would have expected this from the coming Messiah. The prophet Isaiah talks about this. When, when the prophet Isaiah talks about the servant, the servant of the Lord, and the servant of the Lord who would come, and that is the Messiah, he would say that this servant of the Lord would take the whip for his people. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, the servant says, these are the words that Isaiah puts into the mouth of the servant, I offered my back to those who beat me. In other words, the Messiah will come and he will say to the oppressor, you want a back? Take mine. And he will give him his. Then in Isaiah 53, verses 5 to 6, more common passage, and the image is, is taken one step further. That's where Isaiah says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now his wounds, older translations translate that as stripes. It's the marks of the whip, the furrows of the plowman. Those are the wounds that heal us. How? Because they should have been our wounds. See, and the Messiah takes those wounds in our place, our transgressions, our iniquities. For that, he willingly took the punishment so that we can be freed. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's coming and he's saying to us, look, unjust oppression will happen, but justly, you want justice from God? If we look at our own, our own record, personally, and as a society, in how we treat and how... We don't want justice from God, not ultimate justice, because we're the rebels. We're the ones who deserve the judgment of God. And Jesus steps between that and says, I will be the one who accept that justice on your behalf. Justice is satisfied because the penalty is paid, and rescue then is accomplished because the penalty, the, the payment it is made is completely sufficient. And that's how John Gloucester would have certainly understood it because not only did John Gloucester have the experience with the oppression of the plowman, he had personally experienced what it was like to be redeemed. When Gloucester was a, a slave in Blunt County, Tennessee, he came to the attention of a Presbyterian minister, a guy by the name of Gideon Blackburn. And, and Blackburn saw that God had clearly gifted Gloucester to be a preacher of the gospel. In fact, not only when, when Gloucester was, was preaching and teaching about Jesus to people, not only were slaves coming to faith in Jesus, but white people around him were coming to faith in Jesus. And so, and so Blackburn looked at Gloucester and, and said, I, I want him to be free. See, but the law, the problem, the law said that Gloucester was a slave. So Blackburn bought him in order to free him. That's what Jesus did. Paid the price of the law so that he could free us. Except Blackburn, Blackburn paid with money to satisfy the unjust laws of evil men. Jesus paid with his own blood to satisfy the just law of a God, a law that shows us that we actually are all evil men. Now, do you see how if you if that begins to sink in, do you see how that changes how we treat the oppressor? How we're able to look at the, the oppressor in the light of that, right? Because Jesus presented his back to the plowman so that long furrows heal us, right? Because of that, 
John Gloucester could trust that any oppression that he had either personally experienced or continued to happen around him, any oppression would either ultimately be dealt with by a perfect God of justice, or it already had been dealt with when Jesus assumed that justice on their behalf. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't seek temporal justice where it's, where it's appropriate. It doesn't mean that we don't look at oppression and seek ways to, to make that oppression right, to seek, to seek restitution and, 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 and reparation. But what it does mean is that when that justice is denied here and now, we know that there is a final and a perfect court of appeals, that God is in control. Now, perhaps my, my, my favorite example of this is something I shared actually a couple years ago. Twelve Years a Slave, the book, it was turned into a movie. I, I haven't seen the movie, but I, but I read the book. And at the end of the book, this, this, this man, this free black man from New York, Solomon Northrop, who was kidnapped and sold into slavery for 12 years in the Deep South before regaining his freedom, Solomon Northrop writes of, of, of his experience and how he found, he, with the help of others, found one of the men who had kidnapped him originally. And because it was, at the, kidnapping was at least illegal. Kidnapping was, was illegal. And so they, they brought charges against him, charges that went up to, to trial. And, 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 and Northrop said his desire to see Birch tried was his burning sense of the wrong that he had afflicted upon me and the desire to bring him to justice. Now, that's not wrong. That's not wrong. That's very, that's very, very right. But when justice, sadly, but perhaps predictably, was denied to Northrop and Birch was set free, what it meant was Northrop's own belief in a God like this meant that he was able to write and say, a human tribunal has permitted him to escape, but there is another, a higher tribunal, where false testimony will not prevail, and where I am willing, so far as these statements are concerned, to be judged at last. Do you see? That's how a John Gloucester can look at everything around him and say, I trust the justice to God. I can pray that the plans of the oppressor would be, would be foiled, that they would come to nothing, and I can trust that to God. Right? That's how Roshana in Sri Lanka, that's how she can love the young men of the, of the mob in Sri Lanka for the sake of, of Jesus, because she looks at Jesus and she says, he changed my life. I want to see other people's lives changed by him. I want to see more people redeemed. Now, have you experienced that redemption? Has it, has it sunk into you that in, in, in that sense, at least, we're all John Gloucesters, all in bondage, but purchased and freed? And freed, as with the case of Gloucester, freed with a purpose, freed to go out and to take that message of the gospel and to proclaim it boldly, right? Never desiring that evil would prosper, praying, as Paul and Peter and Jesus would have us to do, for God to break in and to intervene in the lives of the, of the oppressors, but free to both love them and the oppressed perfectly. That's how the people of God face oppression and persecution, by recognizing that God is perfectly just and that by him we have been rescued, rescued by the one who took the blows of the plowman. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are perfectly good, perfectly just, and there is something that is both scary and extremely comforting in that. 
something that's scary about your justice, Lord, because we know if we think about it that we haven't measured up to that standard that you require of us. We ourselves have rebelled against you, that if we truly ask for justice, we would find ourselves condemned. And yet when we look at Jesus, we are able to find that extremely comforting. The knowledge that that justice has been perfectly satisfied. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you that you did that for me. Thank you that you protect and preserve for eternity your people. That we can pray that you would intervene in history with confidence because you have done it and because you will not abandon your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name.